You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Welcome to We Are Libertarians. I'm your host, Chris Spangle. We bring you all of the irreverence modern politics deserves while putting people before political parties. We examine current events from a libertarian perspective with the goal of leaving you better informed. Please be sure to rate and review us on iTunes or Google Play. Like us on Facebook and subscribe at Patreon uh, on Patreon at wearelibertarians.com. In exchange for supporting our program, we give you all kinds of bonus content and free stuff. This show is crowdsourced, so you can send us news in our Facebook group and Discord channel. And we are always taking your questions and comments via email at editor at wearelibertarians.com. That is the best way to get a hold of the show. If you want to talk to me directly, editor at wearelibertarians.com. Please be warned that this show is raw, unedited, and authentic, so the language is sometimes strong and offensive. I have a very special show. It's the introduction of a very cool series and possible uh, breakout podcast from the series. Uh, coming soon. I'm going to talk to my friend Rob, uh, Rob Cortell, who is a member of the Swamp. And I met him in a very odd way, uh, totally unexpectedly this February, as I traveled to Students for Liberty uh, at their Liberty Con in February. And I got I got trapped in a snowstorm in the Philly train station. And this very well-dressed, you know, nice man walks walks up and we just start talking as we're waiting for our Ubers. And I mentioned I'm driving to Washington, D.C., and he asked if uh, he can, I said, hey, you want to ride? And so he joined me, and we talked for a couple hours, and as we're going through this conversation, I'm just like, this guy has, he knows everybody. He knows everything. And as I, as I say uh, to him, uh, I, I had to Google just to make sure that he was telling the truth, but there's videos of him on C-SPAN, and, and it, it, he's just a very fascinating guy. He's been in Washington, D.C. for about 40 years. He's worked on three presidential campaigns at very high levels. He's been Senate confirmed. He's uh, a member on the of the Council on Foreign Relations, uh, for instance. So he's he is the swamp, and uh, we joked about that. And I said, you know, I'd love to have you come on the show and kind of explain the swamp to people because I think it would be interesting for those of us who don't live in Washington to get an idea of how Washington D.C. works uh, and. Essentially, you, if you want to change America towards a libertarian future, you have to understand the structures of power because you can't change those structures of power if you don't work within them. Uh, although some people would argue against that, that's generally been the way that I've found is the quickest and easiest way to go about it, um, or at least you can influence it. Uh, so I, I wanted to, to bring on Rob and start a series of conversations with him about his opinion on politics and what he hears when he's at the uh, the bar in Washington, D.C. and hanging out at these, these various events. And I think he's a very interesting guy. This was a very interesting conversation. I'd love for you to check it out. If you have questions, then please send me an email, editor at wearelibertarians.com, and we'll ask them of Rob on future shows. But without further ado... Here's my conversation with Rob Quartel. Rob Quartel, live from the swamp. Uh, how are you doing, Rob? I'm I'm barking up some alligators. <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> well, I'm in the swamp, right? Yes. <laughs> now, are you actually in Washington D.C. right now? Yes. 
Okay. Yeah. So you, you live and work in Washington, D.C., and about how long have you been in the swamp? Oh, my God. I've been here nearly, uh, well, 40 years, 40, uh, 45 years, actually, since I drove here from Texas out of college looking for a job and uh, landed one in the very first day at one of the early swamp creatures, the Environmental Protection Agency, and here I am 45 years later. Uh, living in Logan Circle, which is about uh, eight blocks from the White House, uh, dead center. <laughs> yeah. I, <laughs> I dropped you off, and I was like, oh, yeah, this is pretty swampy. Uh, uh, yeah, right. So we <laughs> it's met- actually pretty nice. <laughs> oh, it's yeah, I stayed at a hotel there in 2013 and, and walked the neighborhood. It's beautiful. It's what a great place to live. Now, Tourists like it. I like it. Let's let's actually talk about how we met first of all because it's kind of a weird story. Uh, I I have posted the travel log that I did for my trip to the Students for Liberty conference, and uh, you played a very small part in that in that story as told because I knew we would we would do this eventually. But we were both stranded in the Philadelphia train station. I'm waiting for an Uber, and then you just start chatting me up. Uh, as we were both stranded in the middle of the first of the four nor'easters, <laughs> so that, that's true. I I was on a I had a board meeting up in New Haven, Connecticut. <clears throat> Got on the train in the morning, sat there for for two hours. S- started snowing, uh, just shy of Trenton. They told us we were going to have to get off the train. Uh, and uh, go back south, and I got bumped in Philly just like you did. And uh, somehow I didn't believe that they were really going to get us out the next morning. So, um, uh, and as you probably described, the snow was going sideways. It was insane. It was so cold. It was insane. But the the Uber line with its 40 people or so was a lot uh, shorter than the uh, taxi line, which wrapped uh, one and a half times around that station, which is as big as a whole city block. So... So we, you're right. We started chatting, and um, and uh, you made an offer. You said you were going to the Libertarian Convention, and I mentioned I was going to Washington, and you said, would you like a ride? And I said, of course. And, and then, uh, then we I made chatted you... the whole way down. That was a lot of fun. Yeah, and then I made you pay half. So <laughs> That's right. That's true. <laughs> uh, yeah, so we started talking, and then as we get through the conversation, I'm like, oh, this guy really knows everybody and everything. And like to the point that... <laughs> I'm not going to lie to you. I got home and I Googled your name just to make sure you were telling the truth because it was just so like, how can one person know Gerald Ford and and Ronald Reagan and, and George H.W. Bush and like be at the center of politics? Like, I guess when you live out in the hinterlands and you follow politics, but you're not necessarily uh, side stage for for modern histories as you have been. You, you don't realize that there are just a group of individuals who have been a part of that. And I think we sometimes think about modern politics in Washington, D.C. as like a monolith. But it, right. it really right. is just a group of people like yourself who have been involved in a, in a, for a long time. And, and there is that, uh, I don't know, the best way to describe it, the best insight that I've had is Mark Leibovich's This Town book. Where it's a lot of a lot of cocktail parties and dinner at five thirty is is you you, you always remind me it's five thirty I've got to go get cocktails. <laughs> <laughs> I, I actually think it's less of that than people tend to think in the political uh, uh, atmosphere. When I when I started with Ford, of course I was a kid. I was twenty, uh, I guess I was twenty five years old, 
And uh, so I was a, a small cog. Uh, and But he did later come down and campaign for me when I ran for Congress. And um, and I, at the time, I think one of the things that got reported in the newspapers, I remember seeing in Atlanta, was that I was more Reagan than Reagan, which I was surprised to be. Mm-hmm. But, but uh, so, um, but, you know, I do, I actually think one of the problems with Washington today is that um, there is a lot less of the uh, interaction in the cocktail party circuit or at the bar or breakfast or any of those things in the, among the political classes. So, you know, today, most of what I do is, is business. So I, <clears throat> I, uh, I, I told you that I uh, spent a lot of time working with startups. So, you know, I always offer these kids uh, and I say kids, they're, they're your age and younger. <laughs> right. <laughs> and uh, I offer them uh, eight o'clock breakfast or 530 cocktails and you know which one they always pick. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I, but it's a good way to learn about people and, and um, you know, Kind of in the old days when I was first here, people actually did that and they got to know each other. And, you know, the the, the story that Reagan used to always tell was that he and, and Tip O'Neill could fight all day long, but they'd end up at the White House having, you know, a drink on the balcony. And I I really don't think that happens very much anymore. I think the the money and the, the race for money and the, the, the tactical ideology – ideological battles, um, kind of overwhelm a lot of that process. So, uh, I think, I think things would be much better off here if people did more drinking. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, and just so you know, I'm killing my video just so the, the connection is better. Uh, so, so you get to Washington in 71 and you're, you're at the beginning of the EPA. What, what did you do for, we'll kind of go through your history and introduce you to the audience, but what did you do at the EPA in the beginning? Well, so I think, as you know, I like to say that I have been in um, three government startups, um, half a dozen business startups, um, half a dozen or more not-for-profit or uh, type startups and things. So I actually like being in organizations at the beginning. I actually uh, worked at the EPA when I was in college. Uh, Nixon um, created the EPA uh, Office of Management and Budget, um, kind of the modern version of government. And... um, my, I took environmental science and biology at Rice University, and and when they opened their doors in 1971, the regional office was in Houston, and my my professor was the head of the region, and so uh, I was able to get a part-time job. So I really started working back in Houston in 71, and then when I graduated in 73, um, I drove home for two days in Florida and Orlando, and the next day drove state, straight to Washington. Um, a guy from Rice was the deputy administrator. This was the days of Ruckel's house, um, and um, he uh, he let me he let me in right away, and I basically walked out with a uh, with a job. Uh, that guy, Bob Fry, became very prominent and was a very beloved kind of figure here. He later headed the um, uh, energy res- research um, organization, and and then the Smithsonian Institution. He was a very good guy. Um, so I was there about um, probably really only four or five months in Washington. And when I arrived, I was um, put in charge of the water quality rules for timber. And despite the fact that I had a degree in environmental science and biology, I used to like to say I had grown up in Florida and therefore never seen a tree. <laughs> <laughs> so so I was a 23-year-old kid. I was writing the rules. Um, and we, of course, had consultants and all that. But um, it was smack in the middle 
of the Arab oil embargo, which I'm sure a lot of people don't even today realize happened, but OPEC, OPEC, the um, the Arab oil uh, cartel, cut the U.S. off basically, and um, we. I, I had by that time uh, met a number of people at the Republican National Committee. You know, I'm a Republican, and I I love to network and meet people. And so um, uh, by that time, I had met some people at the White House and this and that. And Nixon created um, the Federal Energy Office. He also put on price controls and other things. Uh, but uh, the idea of the Federal Energy Office was to figure out what to do about all this. And um, one, of, one of the things that I – I uh, remember doing uh, was uh, before I got there was to calculate the number of barrels of oil it would take to light the Washington Monument, <laughs> and there were, there were people who actually considered shutting it down. <laughs> but um, uh, so I was there about a year, and and that was a very interesting organization. It was great for a young person like me. I was, as I said, by then I was twenty four, and uh, I had a good education, and and basically they threw a bunch of young people and a bunch of young highly educated uh, managers from Harvard Business School and McKinsey and some of those consulting firms onto the problem. And so uh, that was that was a, a terrific experience for a young person. So um, can can we go back to the EPA and, yeah. and you, you explained the, the development of the Office of, of Energy uh, was it Office of Energy Data Policy? Is that the well that came that came later. So okay. um, so in the sequence I was the EPA for a while um, uh, and got pulled into this federal energy office out of the White House. And and actually, the, the first day I walked in was I walked into Nelson Rockefeller's office where it was sort of uh, headquartered uh, nominally. There were only a handful of people, maybe 50 people. And um, um, I walked in, and the head of the agency had already been fired, Governor John Love. And uh, they appointed um, a, a business guy, uh, Bill Simon, became uh, what people fondly called the energy czar. So he was the first <laughs> energy czar. <laughs> and he had to deal with price controls and and uh, power wheeling. And for people that don't know what that is, you know, power is produced in one place and run down electric wires to some other place that has a deficit. So we were we were moving power from Canada down to the to the states in the Midwest. And, and um, so I was there for about a year. And then uh, they uh, converted it into a an actual federal agency, the Federal Energy Administration, uh, to an act of Congress. And that's when uh, my job, I ended up in the Office of the um, uh, uh, in Office of Energy Data Policy is what it evolved into. And, and our job was to get all the data and statistics we could about um, about energy and the problem and who was using it and all of that and um, and help guide policymakers. So can you let's go back to the EPA and yeah. what was the reasoning for the formation of the EPA? Well, so that was seventy three. So um, if you think back into the late sixties, well, of course Rachel Carson, all the way back, you know, back in the late fifties, wrote her book. And that was the beginning of the environmental movement. The silent, and, silent spring. Silent spring. And, uh, and then um, in the 60s, which was a highly activist period, and I went to college in 1968 when it was in full swing, um, the environment was a big deal. And, um, and there, was no, there, were no, there was no single place in the government to kind of manage 
um, the rules. The Clean Air Act was passed. The Clean Water Act was passed. Uh, and um, and this was all part of uh, Nixon's modernization of government. You know, I, I think um, people forget that there had been no major uh, reform of the federal government probably in 50 years uh, until that time. And and uh, everything was intended to streamline. He actually had considered putting together some of the agencies into super cabinet, hmm. super cabinet uh, offices. And, and uh, so the EPA was part of that streamlining. And, you know, and, and early on, they had a mandate basically to clean up the water and clean up the air. And um, uh, I, I, I dare say most people uh, your age have never uh, experienced um, smog like the kind they used to have on the West Coast and we would have periodically in the East Coast. There, there literally used to be a smog index every day. And um, so that was, that was really the first attempt to pull all that together. So would you? So basically, there there was a public outcry, and there became. I mean, I, this pattern probably, and, and we know it goes on today. But I wondered if it, if it happened back then. Uh, there's a public outcry. Somebody writes a book. Everybody goes, "Oh, there's there's a profit or B. This is a crisis." They create a public hysteria, and then Congress passes law, and then there's all these rules and regulations, and nobody to actually. Enforce them and manage them. Is that kind of the well? The well, long, the short I, of probably it? there. There are a lot of there. Are way too many people to enforce and manage them these days. But um, it, sort of like that. I mean, that that is the archetypal um, way things get done in Washington. People wait for a good crisis. I forgot who said, "Never waste a good crisis." But Rahm um, Emanuel, yeah, yeah, Rahm Emanuel, right? And um, uh, EPA was more a percolation. You know, that kind of percolated for. A number of years, and then the the various uh, environmental laws were passed, and um, so it was, it was really kind of a natural evolution. I, I think they pulled elements out of the Department of Interior, they pulled elements out of um, uh, other departments, uh, and uh, you know, so EPA was a little more benign in those days than it seems to be these days. Um, although it, it didn't take long to start trying to figure out how to regulate uh, the economy. Uh, in terms of, uh, you know, environmental impact and everything else. And, of, co of course, that's only one set of r regulatory uh, laws that the public knows about. You know, when at one point I was building a company in Texas, uh, we were uh, building uh, oil storage domes to uh, fill for commercial commercial use and with oil. And um, lo and behold, there's a law that – the Antiquities Act, I guess. There's a law that requires you do archaeological research too. And um, uh, we indeed were stopped for about a year and a half uh, because we dug and found uh, the oldest uh, Spanish uh, artifact that had ever been discovered in Texas at that time. Just so, your luck. <laughs> yeah, right. That's right. Although, you know, it's a good thing. And, uh, you know, and we did mitigation and uh, that all worked out fine. So there, there's supposed to be balances. Uh, I think most of us get upset when the balance kind of goes out of whack. So – Compare the EPA back when you started to what the EPA is now. I, I, am, I assume you are familiar with what the EPA is now and, and Scott Pruitt, and we'll ask about him next. But compare the difference between 1971 EPA and what it has grown into over the, the course of time. Well, I'm not, I'm not sure I would do it justice. I, I don't actually follow the EPA that closely. Um, uh, I will say I had I was at a meeting with Scott Pruitt and a number of um, – of, uh, 
they could I could only call them lobbyists. There were about twenty of us in the room, <laughs> uh, mostly from the mining industry, and and uh, we introduced ourselves around the room. And and of course, it's in this mammoth headquarters now. We when I was at the EPA, we were at a small office out in Houston, and then get to Washington, and we were uh, a modern building in an area that had been uh, kind of part of the blighted area of Washington. It was all a new development, and that was nice. Um, but it's in a much, I think the staff is much bigger and they of course have many more mandates and many more rules. But, um, so I, I did meet, uh, Pruitt at that point. And he, um, uh, he, he, uh, is an interesting guy. Um, he independently of the issues around the ethical behavior, which by almost any standard are pretty, um, uh, I don't know how he'd call them. They're, they're not very thoughtful. Let's just put it that way. Um, um, he, uh, he did hit on one point, which I think it would be better if he argued it more more frequently than some of the things they do, which was that what he said was that he um, he only intended to enforce the law, that he was pro-environment and pro-blah, blah, blah. And I'm willing to take him at face for a little bit, but he, um, he, he went on to say that his, what he felt his mandate was, was to, um, have the agency live inside the law. And, uh, we do know that there are a number of, um, pro, uh, programmatic approaches that have been implemented by presidents from probably from Reagan on, but certainly through, from, uh, Obama and before that George W. Bush and before that, uh, Bill Clinton, um, that uh, came about because the presidents get kind of frustrated with the fact that the Congress never seems to do anything. <laughs> so, so their response, the response of an activist and any president is, well, if I can't get them to do it, I'm going to write a law myself. And if I can't write a law, I'm going to write a rule well, and do it by executive order. Yeah. We're seeing that with the Iran deal. I mean, this, oh, th this is the, yeah. I mean, in both directions, by the way. Yeah. You want to go back to Obama <laughs> and say, Hey, you remember when everybody was saying, obey the constitution? Well, now you're seeing why is because the next guy who is fundamentally different than you on the exact opposite yeah. side of every issue you believe in can go in and just completely overturn everything you did when it's all done through the executive branch. Absolutely. By executive order. And, and in the case of, for example, the the uh, the uh, coal uh, actions under the the administration under the Obama administration, uh, they actually had lost the initial case in the court towards the end of the administration. So, and it was on that basis. And you know, at some point in the future, we can talk about that. Uh, but uh, it's not the first uh, executive action to be overturned. It's not the uh, first uh, overreach. And uh, and and you're correct about. Uh, Iran in that um, it's effectively a treaty and it wasn't approved by the Congress per se. So uh, it, I think technically it's not called a treaty. So yeah. that's how they get around it. So let's, let's hop back on your career path. You end up as the deputy policy director for the presidential clemency board. What is, what is the presidential clemency board? <laughs> well, so at one point, um, um, at one point, uh, when J Jerry Ford became president um, and Nixon resigned and he became president and flew off in the helicopter, um, he, within a matter of a day or two, pardoned Nixon. And he did that to um, because there was so much controversy and there were calls for Nixon to be put on trial and, and uh, you know, publicly hung effectively. And he just wanted to get it over with. It had been a, a very long 
period. The whole Watergate thing and it was pretty awful in a lot of respects. Wasn't for society. it? Wasn't it about two two years total? Oh, it was easily two years, and and and. You know, it began with people who, uh, in some ways, it, it was tied up with this whole issue of, of uh, press intensely disliking Nixon uh, for a variety of reasons. And then, of course, he stepped into it, and then it, they went after him. And I, I suppose there are some parallels to um, the current situation. But the uh, so, so Ford became president, pardoned Nixon, big outcry. And he then uh, decided, his advisors decided to set up a commission and to pardon Vietnam-era draft evaders. So there was this sort of mythology that there are a lot of American kids who fled to Canada. And so he set this up. It was called the Presidential Clemency Board. And uh, a president is allowed to spend a certain amount of money out of his budget on a program like this as long as it ends uh, in less than a year. So the, the board was set up to run for 364 days, and, uh, and it, they brought in a great group of smart people, as always, and uh, had a really interesting board. Um, General Lewis Walt, who had been head of the Marine Corps, uh, sort of counterpoint to um, Lou Puller, who was the son of General Chesty Puller, who was the, the, the Marine's He's virtually a god in the Marine Corps. He's the most beloved Marine of all time. And his son had gone to Vietnam and and um, lost an arm and I think a leg and or two legs and uh, and then later went on to become a lawyer and very prominent. Um, but you know he suffered from all of the issues that young men did in that era and eventually committed suicide after his he got married and had kids and got divorced and on and on. But he was a great guy. And um, and then um, Joanne Vinson was the head of uh, MIA MIA POWs missing in action POWs and uh, one or two friends of the president's and and uh, Charlie Goodell was a former senator. I, I'm just from- listening to the to this re- like they're putting people who really put a, put up a lot <laughs> in the, yeah. in the Vietnam War in charge of letting off the draft dodgers. Yeah, ex- ex- and you know it was well. The attempt was to heal this divisive kind of situation, and uh, so he set this up. And over time, the board eventually recruited about 500 lawyers. That's you're, you're allowed to to um, assign uh, employees from one agency to another on a temporary basis. And so uh, they were uh, they were eventually re- recruited about 500 lawyers and a management team from the Peace Corps. And uh, a couple of really smart people. And uh, uh, the general counsel was a guy named Larry Baskier. And the deputy manager for the clemency board was a guy named Bob M- Nisley. I was, I was under the head, of the, man- the head of the management, so I was a deputy to him. G- uh, a guy named Bill Strauss, who um, eventually wrote a book, Pete, uh, Chance and Circumstance, which he was able to do by virtue of collecting the data uh, publicly uh, from all the cases. And so the board got set up. And um, they had some people apply, and they immediately broadened the, the scope to not just be draft evaders because they figured out pretty quickly there probably were not 15 people of that many who fled to Canada. Hmm. Um, but there Re- were was it really? hundreds. Yeah, okay, huh? so it was hundreds. It was not 15 people. Oh, no. But- no, oh, no it was probably about 15 people. Jeez. But there were, in fact, um, there were tens of thousands of young men and some women 
who had bad discharges, who they'd gotten caught in the system. Uh, they had um, uh, the, the classic case that I've written about in other, other instances was an um, African-American soldier who had had three tours of duty in Vietnam, uh, been wounded a couple times on his third tour returning home uh, through Germany, got caught on a drug charge and cashiered entirely. He lost his medical benefits, his retirement benefits. Um, it was like he had never done anything to help the country, to serve the country. And, and that would be uh, as much uh, the norm uh, that was the way the system worked in those days as anything else. So um, so they put out this call for all of these kids, and they got some number and and didn't have enough. Um, what chance and circumstance uh, talked about, and again, Vietnam would be – and current wars would be another interesting topic in the future, was there were um, – uh, I can't remember the number, but it was tens and tens of millions of young Americans were eligible – by virtue of their age to go to that war, uh, 51% were automatically uh, not uh, – uh, were not drafted and that means all women and so you have yeah. that number. And then uh, two or three million – again, I'm, I'll, I'll, we can talk about this at some point in the future – actually went over the course of the war and then there were tens of thousands. I think it was 42 or 3,000 killed uh, in that conflict over time. And of course, we thought that one dragged on forever. Right. And, you know, Iraq has gone on, you know, several years uh, past that. Oh, I mean, there's kids in Afghanistan right now. I mean, there are people serving in Afghanistan who have no cognitive memory of 9-11. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, that, it's that's almost exactly 20 right. years. Yeah. So, so at the time, of course, we thought it had gone on and on, and, and more people were killed in that. Um, uh, approximately the number of people who, who used to get killed on the highways every year. But um, so, so in the entire population of the United States – only a small handful had actually had to suffer the burden of, of executing the war. And, and there's a kind of social unfairness about that, including the fact that if you're wealthy enough, you go to college and keep going to graduate school and get a deferment. If you were, if you were, um, let's had a bone spur, let's, let's say, say bone spurs yeah. <laughs> from someone we know you could get out. Um, if, uh, and, um, then uh, Nixon at some point implemented the draft a lottery, and uh, I my number was 316. I will remember it to the day I'm dead. They would have had to nuke the White House before they called me up, <laughs> and uh, I had been in Navy ROTC up until that point. But in any case, so the clemency board actually it, – so it was trying to reach all these young men and some women and really didn't get a lot of a response. So we literally took out ads in Playboy magazine. And uh, there was a big ad during the Super Bowl that year. And in the end, we had 35 to 38,000 applicants. And we ran them all through this process in 364 days. And the process uh, – and th th this is uh, – the guy who was th my boss in the, the who ran the management operation had gone to uh, Kennedy School, the Harvard School um, – uh, Harvard and, and Harvard Law School, a brilliant, brilliant guy. And he he immediately started looking at the numbers. So on the first pass or two or three through the board, um, they they looked at some number, a couple dozen cases, and gave them a sentence or they let them off or they gave them this or that. And he went back and looked and kind of quantified the factors in their cases and figured out that the decisions were entirely random. Hmm. And therefore, not uh, not necessarily fair, and certainly not um, uh, transparent. 
So he came up with what he called um, aggravating and mitigating factors, and he got the board to agree on what constituted uh, each of those, and there might be a dozen things like uh, you were wounded in combat would be considered a mitigating factor, and uh, uh, aggravating factor is you were caught using drugs in, on the front line or you know, you'd gotten in brawls or whatever like that. But mm-hmm. uh, And so uh, he made the vote, so they were, they were specific decision criteria, and then the staff would um, – staff would go through – each case, all these players, and they look at them and they say, I think these four aggravating factors and these six mitigating factors apply, and I'd recommend this outcome. And then that would go through the board, and the board could agree or disagree, but uh, they at least would state these reasons. And then one of the things that was very interesting to me, you know, today, some uh, however many, 40 years later, uh, you know, I, I my company does decision analytics and predictive analytics and all that, and and we use some of those kinds of ideas in technology. You, they're, they're like rules. Hmm. So you hear about rule systems. So that was an early rule systems. And it was really virtually pre-computer and all we had were IBM Selectric 2s to type with, which again, no one who's listening probably even knows what that is, but it's a typewriter. <laughs> you know what a typewriter is? It was an electric typewriter that had a little back button that could erase you know, what you had just typed. Which was a major breakthrough in those days. I think my and, mom. Uh, I think my mom had one of those. Now that I'm thinking I'm about, sure, your mother had one, and yeah, your, your, your grandparents might even have had them. Yeah, but uh, so anyway, so so we managed to, and then and then we ran a regression analysis on each case against everyone that had gone through to see if it seemed to fall within some statistical range. So this was like the 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 end end. This was the ultimate fairness. That if you had the same kind of circumstances, you'd end up in the same place. And we would, they, you know, some of the soldiers had their benefits restored, their health care, medical care restored and things like that, partial benefits, got pardons, whatever. And um, and so uh, that was a very, very, in my mind, one of the most successful government experiences I've ever seen. And, you know, that's it's kind of today uh, uh, I'm I'm not an expert in in the pardon, presidential pardon system and the federal pardon system. But, you know, we have these big backlogs of people and, and uh, it is sort of random. And, and of course, it can be entirely by virtue of random decision if you want. If the president wants to pardon somebody, he can't, doesn't have, have a reason. But but uh, some of these principles could apply to a lot of other places. Well, you know, to, you think about Well, to you think know, that you had 35,000 to 38,000 soldiers who served in Vietnam or, you know, did they serve or they were just they were drafted and called up or some 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 may have been drafted. Some may have um, some some were drafted. Some may have volunteered. Um, uh, Some may never have gone over. Uh, But, you know, that's you think about the the two to three million people. Again, I I think it's closer to two, but um, who went. Um, as a percentage of the population, it was, it, you know, it's like you're talking 1% of the population bore the burden of the entire war. And, and then to have that many thousands of people have have wrongly been stripped of their benefits, I mean, that's a pretty yeah. significant number. So it's a pretty yeah. cool achievement. Yeah. And, not, and not all of them got that back. You know, some of them applied who, who, who didn't have enough mitigating factors or anything else. So the intent was not to do something that, that, any other soldier would have disagreed with the end. And, and I will say what was really interesting, and this is sort of, uh, this was a really interesting uh, thing to watch. Um, 
General Walt had been head of the Marine Corps, as I said, and Lou Puller, uh, I think uh, uh, Lou Walt, General Walt was in his, um, you know, late 50s, probably early 60s, and a real kind of a, a bear kind of curmudgeon and <laughs> really a tough guy. And and on the same commission making decisions was Lou, Lou Puller, who was um, who was in his if, – if he was 30 then, I'd be surprised – um, and had been maimed by the war, yet whose dad was um, the most famous Marine of all time. And I, we all remember General Walt saying to him, your father would be rolling in his grave at your decisions. <laughs> so you can imagine that Lou Puller uh, was um, – he was forgiving and sympathetic and had empathy because he had been one of those soldiers. Right. And then, of course – um, Joanne Vincent and, and and virtually all of the others, I think, who had family who'd gone to war, gone to war themselves. I mean, or lost husbands um, like Joanne. They were likewise. Um, they understood their their husbands had had been killed in these in the war and or never came back, never found necessarily. So they had a real empathy uh, towards this very very unpopular war and the scars it inflicted on all these soldiers. So you know, today we have um, we ha we have uh, all these military veterans coming back um, with psychological uh, issues and PTSD and all of that. In, in addition to all the wounds from which they survive, uh, which they didn't used to survive many of these wounds. Uh, and that, let, let me ask. So you, we see it today. Yeah. So you did you? I assume you interacted with a tremendous amount of these people, right? Well, actually, no. Uh, you know, we were um, uh, we were they, they sent their applications in. Uh, the lawyers would call them and interview them. Uh, some of them may well have come before the board, but I it was really um, a bureaucratic process. Um, think about how uh, most government applications work. Basically, you fill out a document. It goes to a bureaucrat. And by the way, you and I both know that bureaucrat was intended not to be a negative term, but a positive term. Um, Bismarck uh, created bureaucrats and bureaucracies in order to to regularize and um, and uh, the process of government. Um, so, but it's come to have a different meaning in these days, as you well know. Sure, uh, but it's uh, their own fault. It doesn't work. <laughs> kinda, yeah, I agree with that. And, and some are good, and some are not so good. You know. So yeah, I, on that point, I would say that there is. I mean, I was just watching uh, coverage of the primaries in West Virginia last night, and ABC tweeted out this guy talking to a reporter, <laughs> and and there was this nut who was running in West Virginia. We talked about him on the last episode of the show, where he was talking about cocaine, Mitch, and he's beholden to China people. You know, Mitch has an yeah. Asian wife, so it was it was a little cringy. Is that Blankenship, yeah, Don Blankenship, and. Yeah. He he went to jail for unsafe working conditions that caused the death of twenty nine people. And so this That's guy, right. this guy that was being interviewed after he voted, three of his cousins had died in the mine blasts. Right. And he said he voted for Don Blankenship. And the reporter's face—I mean, he couldn't believe it. He goes, wow. "Why? Why would you vote for Don Blankenship?" And he just goes, "Well, they're all crooks, so at least he's an honest crook." And I just <laughs> thought. <laughs> People are so cynical about their own government that they're going uh, to vote yeah. for a guy that killed his. <laughs> he no, I, 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 I just I, you have to hope that that is uh, 
uh, an aberration. That's really crazy. I don't know. Uh, I mean, with the, of course, he didn't win, so that's a good thing. Well, in Indiana, uh, we had a guy who won with forty percent of the vote in a three-way race. That was a very, very contested right. race, and and all, he was a Democrat until twenty twelve. I mean, the the next. Republican nominee for the Senate in in Indiana voted for Hillary or Obama, uh, and <laughs> he he did it by spending six million dollars of his own money, outspending his two opponents who spent two each yeah. on TV, by just saying I'm an outsider, and it and it worked. And so I I have to yeah. ask. I mean, you you interact with a lot of people who work in Washington D.C. I think we are far too cynical and tar- far too um, group thinky out in the rest of the the country that the, the, the there's a reason the swamp thing works like it's just yeah. a, it's just a collection of people who are out to steal from the government and use the government for their own interests and I, I know that happens I mean I'm sure it does but by and large are, are do you find people who are mostly motivated by power or are they mostly motivated by the concept of public service like they're they're really trying to do their best. Their their ideas may just be flawed, or the bureaucracy, for example, doesn't work. I mean, what is the general flavor of the people that you interact with that make up the bureaucracy of the United States government? So that's that's a good setup. I, I some of the 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 most intelligent, patriotic, um, thoughtful um, people I've ever met have been in the government. Um, and some of the laziest people I've ever met, thoughtless, don't care about it, I've met in the private sector. Hmm. So you get some of both. Um, and I've met plenty of people in the government who are serving their time, but I also know plenty of people in the private sector who are serving their time. And, you know, I'm in technology, and not all technology is startup technology. But um, the by and large, most government workers are not people with what you think of traditionally as power, the the people who have the power are the the uh, the appointees. At least they have public power in the sense that they can um, command a different direction and and um, emphasize or deemphasize some aspect of the law. Um, and and I was in one of those slots years ago, although I didn't have a lot of power as an independent commissioner. But um, the um, you know, I, I think most people are motivated by the same things that everybody else is motivated by. You know, it, I need money. I want to have a job. I like what I'm doing um, or I don't like what I'm doing, but I'm going to do it till I retire. Um, and some agencies are better than others. And then some places are restrained by the way the law has been written by the Congress. So, for example, um, the Veterans Administration, and and again, I'm I can't. I don't want to delve deeply into that today, but you know we've all read about this long line of uh, veterans applying for benefits and months of waiting and all that. And and as a technology guy, I'm pretty convinced that that's a process that you could truncate and make efficient and autom- almost automatic uh, decision on benefits or whatever. But um, the way the law is written, you if if you apply for a benefit and and you're not eligible for it quite yet by virtue of age or something else, you basically the the case file has to be recreated from scratch um, when you go back to apply when you're eligible. Or um, and for the longest time, I don't know if it's still true today, but I think it's probably in the law somewhere. 
um, anybody could apply on a napkin. Basically, you can write, you know, I need, I'm a soldier and I need benefits. So, um, you know, nothing is quite that simple, but it's it's sort of like that. So the law is frequently written in ways that you can't get around. Now, my experience in general with um, bureaucrats, uh, the professionals in the government, are that they do a remarkable job of of trying to reflect the position of the politicians who govern them. So, you know, they, they may not like it or agree with it. They have the right to, to, to explain a position, but by and large, um, they, they bend pretty well with the changing tides. Um, some burrow deep in and don't want to do that. You know, there's this process, which we call burrowing in after every administration it's happened for a hundred years, people who, um, where political appointees get themselves a civil service rating and then get, you know, find a way to stay in the agency under civil service protections. Um, what does that mean? Well, you, there are, there are a variety of processes that are, again, very similar to what we see in a lot of private sector companies, particularly large companies. You know, as you get, the bigger you get, the more uh, difficult it becomes to, to fire people or move them around or reduce benefits or anything like that. So a lot of the characteristics of the government come about by virtue of its size, pure size. So, you know, an organization with 10,000 people in the public sector is going to be almost as difficult to manage as an organization with 10,000 people in the private sector. Uh, It just it's a it's a size issue and a management issue and all that. So so everybody sets up rules to protect themselves. So labor law uh, is, you know, it's very similar in different places. We tend to, we, we like to think it's not, it's hard to fire somebody in the, in the civil service. You have the right, uh, many, many of the agencies, but not all the agencies have partially unionized, uh, employees. So they have another, they have contracts and you have to deal with those. Um, but private sector companies do too, right? So, mm-hmm. uh, so, but I do think the, the, the reality is that, um, uh, a lot of what we tend to think is, uh, sloth and everything else is process that someone has created under the theory that they are making things more efficient and uh, and more immune to uh, to bad actors but uh, it's like federal contracting I've, I've watched federal contracting for 40 years on both sides of it and every four years every new president someone comes in and says I'm going to reform it and and they they don't know what they're talking about when they get there. They don't know enough about the ins and outs of the way the system actually works to be able to actually change it. Right. Uh, you know, I've seen that in, in uh, military contracting. I've seen it go through multiple variations. I, I years ago was in a, uh, a several day uh, seminar at um, the Kennedy School. Some very smart people about naval procurement and uh, and very very difficult issues and. But, uh, it seems like I think a lot, of pe- a lot of people's views are based out of frustration. Sure, and you're looking at Donald Trump. I think he's the perfect example of somebody who yeah. is unfamiliar with how bureaucracy works and is unable to actually manage it. And that's that's always been one of my contentions. If you if you hire a president or a governor, uh, you want them to have some business <clears throat> experience. Like Mitch Daniels here in Indiana was an infinitely more capable governor because he had managed Lilly, one of the major drug companies. He'd worked yeah. for the Office of Management and Budget, so he had some government 
uh, process. But then Mike Pence comes in, and he's one of the worst governors in modern history because he just was in <laughs> Congress, and all he did was talk. And so he didn't know how to manage any of the bureaucracy at all. And I think that was part of uh, Bill Clinton's gift at managing at the bureaucracy as a president. He had been a governor. And then you see somebody like Barack yeah. Obama who who is frustrated by the totally. inability to make any changes. Well, totally. And then and, you, and there, and there are a lot of analogies between the two. So yeah, and then so, you've got Trump who who has never even worked in government, has no concept of how government works, and has no desire to learn how to manage. Well, them. more critically, he didn't run a big business. Right. He ran a small family business. So right. he ran it um, basically out of his hip pocket. He. He had uh, fewer people working for him than most major businesses, uh, most mid-level businesses. Um, he um, ran it on the basis of loyalty to execute this or that. Um, and, and it's a very different kind of business, real estate. Um, uh, so he was basically a brand management business. Okay, So he didn't have business experience either in the same way that we tend to think of business experience. So the analogy between... Uh, Donald Trump and Obama, um, and Barack Obama in terms of their experience in managing how many people reported to them, it's pretty closely the same. Right. And, and they run into the same issues. And of course, as you point out, this is why I think governors uh, um, actually uh, have a hand up because they've had to deal with bureaucracies and thousands of people and big budgets, and they have to be the ultimate decision maker. And they have to deal with state legislatures, which are analogous to the Congress. And so- so governors are a much better choice, and and probably somebody like a Jamie Dimon, um, you know, who has managed this, a massive, massive bank, with Chase, Chase hundreds, bank. A hundred plus thousand employees around the world. Somebody like that could probably walk in and do a much better job. Yeah. So what what are your general impressions of Donald Trump? It's uh, you know I. I may be one of the few people you know who actually predicted that he'd win. I, I won something like 18 bets. <laughs> and uh, I, I won it by actually looking at the numbers. The pollsters did not uh, get the numbers wrong. The pollsters, analysts got the outcomes wrong. You know, e even up to the very end, you were seeing uh, 8 to 14, 15 points uh, undecideds uh, in key states. And Anyone who's ever been in politics, the rule of thumb, it's it, undecideds break two to one for the challenger. Hmm. And and that's and, and I looked at all that and kind of did that math in my head. And and for me, it was pretty easy to tell where it was going to go. But um, my I, I was no fan and I admit to not having voted for him and I didn't vote for Hillary. I voted for for uh, uh, McMullen, who was uh, uh, he wasn't libertarian. It would have been nice to have. <laughs> a good qualified guy for that, uh, but he, um, but um, I thought that he might. Uh, he's he's a transaction guy, and he's brought in people like himself who are basically transaction guys. And I think uh, he 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 doesn't have an ideology. And you and I have both, both talked about that. He's not really a Republican. He's not a Democrat. He's a uh, he's kind of a guy who has an opinion about everything, not based on a. He's, kind of, uh, I think, he's your uh, boomer uncle at the Thanksgiving kitchen table spouting off about politics that he b briefly read on his Facebook page or whatever email was forwarded to him. I mean, he, he doesn't yeah. – I don't think that he's an unintelligent person. I think no. – I just think he's an uninformed – he's he's kind of the typification of the ugly American 
and he's just not intellectually curious, and he's just, I think he's, I think he's starting to feel his oats a little bit. I mean, he's he's starting to kind of get the hang of things, and I think yeah. that's why you see a little more swagger with things like Iran and North Korea, uh, yeah. and there's little less chaos now than there was this time last year, but... But by and large, yeah, he has no ideology. His whole ideology is, who is annoying me at the moment? I must fire them. <laughs> I, I, I'm going to leave you for that description. It's probably a good description. I, I think, like a lot of people, he's partially informed. Right. Um, of course, he's getting a lot of advice these days. He's, uh, he ought to have a pretty good information set available on, on uh, security issues and a lot of other issues. So I'm, I'm guessing he's a lot better informed than he was when he came in. But, of course... You know, you could probably say that of anybody who becomes president, except somebody like George Bush, who was there for eight years, and and uh, uh, Harry Truman, who was the last uh, vice president who went straight to the presidency, um, uh, was kind of kept out of the loop. Uh, Richard Nixon was pretty well informed, but he had a gap of uh, uh, eight years, so he w- was not right up there. But I think it's hard for anybody to, to really know what the burden of the presidency is going to be like till you really get there. But but I think my my hope was that he would, because he didn't have a particular ideology uh, and because he he is a deal guy, I think a lot of us sort of hope that he would uh, be able to kind of churn his way through some of these things that have been gnawing at us in public and created a lot of the antipathy and, and uh um, kind of this negative back and forth that we have across society today, whether the issue is is uh, immigration or the economy or taxes or North Korea or whatever. Um, some have uh, are, some have observed here in Washington that he is doing what a lot of presidents do when they uh, run into the buzz mill of bad domestic uh, PR, uh, the you know the um, all the various suits and everything else and the and Mueller and so on and so forth, which is to uh, turn to foreign policy. Hmm. Foreign policy is one of these things that a lot of Americans have an opinion on. A lot of not a, a lot of a lot have an opinion. Not many know a whole lot about it. Right. Um, and the ins and outs, and um, and so there, there's kind of the, uh, the talk around here today is you know he's doing things that divert people's attention from the other problems. So now uh, this is going to make the audience uh, a portion of the audience their head explode. But you are a, mem- a member <laughs> of the Council on Foreign Relations, are you not? I am. Okay. I am indeed. So part of, and I wonder sort of the reaction from that crowd, because part of what I like about Trump is that he doesn't give a damn what the foreign policy establishment thinks, and that he's willing to do things that, like, he doesn't know any better, and he doesn't, even if he did know any better, he doesn't care, and so he's going to hold his meeting at the DMZ, and then you get Richard Haas, the pres- you know, and all these various foreign policy experts come out and say, oh, this would be a horrible mistake. And then all the pundits at the magazines in New York and Washington start, oh, this is – it would be horrible if he had the meeting at the, at the DMZ. But I think most Americans look at that and go, I don't, I don't know why it's a bad thing. I don't know why I should listen to you. But <laughs> if he wants to do it at the DMZ, go for it, Trump. I mean, you're doing. Well, he's actually going to do it in Singapore now. Okay, but that's. No, I'm, I'm using he's that. The date. Okay, and so that, I'm using that as an example where, yeah, yeah. where he just he doesn't he's not reading Commentary magazine. He's he's not no. attending uh, lectures or having having Richard Haas up for tea. Who's I don't the, think he reads anything. You know, according to the press. Right? Uh, of course. 
So that's part of what attracts me to Trump is that he doesn't listen to the crowd that got us into the Iraq wars. I mean, what is the is there just apoplexion amongst that crowd when it when it comes to some of the things like the Iran deal? I mean, I can't imagine what Washington was like when he announced that he was pulling out of that. Yeah. Well, like every institution, um, the Council on Foreign Relations um, is uh, reflects a lot of different points of view. There are right wingers on the Council on Foreign Relations. There are left wingers. Um, there are people from George Bush and um, probably someone all the way back to the Eisenhower administration um, uh, in on the Council on Foreign Relations. There are economists and there and not everybody's a foreign policy. Um, what you think of as foreign policy establishment. Now, I'm certainly not foreign policy establishment, but I, I have a company that operates in the Middle East. Uh, and I was federal maritime commissioner, so I dealt with international shipping. So that's really how I got in. Uh, Jim Baker was uh, my sponsor. Uh, actually, that's a funny story there. Uh, he offered to sponsor me, and and uh, after some number of years, I thought it sounded like a great idea. And, and then I, at the point at that point in time, I was serving on an advisory board to the um, uh, to the Wilson Center, one of those establishment groups, right, <laughs> uh, which was put together to honor Woodrow Wilson. And Lee Hamilton, a very famous Democratic congressman from Indiana, who who ran um, the uh, the early hearings um, on the CIA and all that stuff. Nine Eleven Commission, uh, yeah. And Nine Eleven Commission too, and uh, that's probably what most people know him for today. Very nice, intelligent, smart, really centrist kind of guy. And I I said, well, Lee, would you be a second? He said, you know, Rob. I've nominated a number of people, and no one I did has ever gotten in on the first pass. <laughs> and so, stick with Jim Baker. And so, I did get in on the first pass. And I, I will say it's it's been one of the it's one of the most interesting groups of people, and and they talk about some of the greatest interesting issues um, you could ever have. I um, uh, at one point um, it's a very uh, famous, at least inside counterterrorism, uh, Australian ca- uh, cultural anthropologist. Uh, 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 named uh, McMullen, and he he worked for David Petraeus, and he was the guy who figured out the Shia Sunni mix and how to kind of reach out and get them all engaged um, with the central government, and that was part of the turnaround. and And, and it was a briefing for like twelve people, and he talked about um, uh, how the Al Qaeda was um, basically bringing the heads of chieftains to the uh, their sons. To them in, in ice coolers mm. and and um, and offered aid and help to them and everything else and so it turned out well but that's the kind of thing I would never have heard in public it wasn't I don't think that became public for two or three years so um, so it's a mix of people some um, you know John Bolton's a member probably. Uh, I think every member of the foreign policy establishment on both sides is a member probably so what um, so what like what what goes on there? I mean, are you sacrificing virgins? How many ounces of goat's blood did oh, you yeah. have to? Yeah, we run around and get uh, uh, tattoos on our right cheek. <laughs> but and, uh, but right. I think there's a lot of mystery around it. But people don't know no, what but that is. No mystery. It's it's really public. It's uh, I think they're like 1,200 members or somewhere plus or minus, and um, range from young to old. They have a program for for young people uh, under 39. You're a temporary member for three or four years. I don't know what it is now, but and then they're life members like myself. And, and um, uh, they have a lot of speakers and seminars. I've been to 
Um, they've got a series now on cybersecurity, and uh, a friend of mine who used to be at the NSC and in charge of cyber government policy is, is running those, and they'll do seminars on various wars, or uh, next week it might be uh, the Saudi ambassador is in to talk about this or that, and it's just a really good way for a lot of people, and, and I'm guessing half are probably operate in businesses today. They're not in the foreign, doing foreign policy, but um, it's uh, they, they talk about climate change. They talk about, um, uh, you know, how, how dry the Sahara is getting this week. They talk about um, uh, they've done things in education, energy. Um, so it's, it's not as esoteric, I think, as people think it is. And it's probably not nearly as esoteric as it probably used to be. Uh, 35, 40, 50 years ago. So, um, and, and I, I will say when I was working with, for, um, George HW Bush, uh, he was attacked by the, uh, uh, the right, uh, right, right, um, for being a member of the council on foreign relations and, and, uh, other organizations as being elitist. I, I do think that you can argue that some of these people are a little bit elitist, but you know they're elitist because they're in the know, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, I've I've down like that cybersecurity series is in their podcast feed. So if you're yeah. out in the hinterlands like I am, you can go and watch all of this stuff on YouTube or listen right. to the podcast series with the Wilson Center. The Aspen Institute, the Brookings Institute, Brookings Institute, Completely. Rand Corporation, all these think tanks put all of their information out, just like Cato does, Mises. That's and right. what what and, I, what I always say and is, you'll like, see me in some of those uh, broadcasts asking uh, questions that other people are thinking but not saying. Yeah, and, and so <laughs> I really encourage people to pay attention to that stuff when I'm doing research on something like the Iran deal. I go to the Council on Foreign Relations and see in Brookings and see what they have to say because. It reflects the the view of the people who are making decisions just as much as I would go, going and reading Reason or Antiwar.com and, and Scott Horton. I mean, I think you have to have balance if you're taking in information. But I think they're within the libertarian movement, more of the conspiratorial part of the movement, oh, if you listen to the Council on Foreign Relations, you're a globalist. And, and it's just like... No, that's if you listen to the Council on Foreign Relations podcasts, you're probably going to hear all the conspiracies that you uh, in five years are going to be. It wasn't a conspiracy; that's it was right. on a podcast feed. That's right. <laughs> well, and and I do think um, a lot of these organizations today try to combat what is, I think, personally as a technology guy, one of the worst aspects of modern life, which is the ten tendency to only hear what you want to hear. And, you know, that's actually the outcome of a technology, if you think about it. When Amazon started, um, they you would go on and order a book. They were a book dealer, remember? And uh, they came up with uh, a uh, an algorithm that helped find other books that were similar to the one that you just ordered on the assumption you liked it. And that algorithm and others like it today are all designed to reinforce your um, stovepipe that's try designed to reinforce the ideas you already have or to appeal to you on the basis of an idea you already have. And and that's kind of one of the things uh, you and I, I hope can do as we go across this series is bring to light some things on both sides of the equation. Well, that's really the whole point of this is uh, I'm, I'm sure there are people in the audience who will accuse me of being a heretic for giving a voice to the swamp. 
but I think it's really important for people to understand, A, that people who work and live in Washington, D.C. and are involved in these circles are human beings uh, and, and probably are well-meaning. It's just a matter of we have different ideologies. So how did their ideas, how did they, how did they form their ideas? And, you know, Rob is somebody who's been in Washington, D.C. for 40 years. So he's going to have a totally different opinion than, than you know, me, who's 34 and has lived in Indianapolis my whole life. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, I think it's important for us to understand kind of how, how we got here. And secondly, you know, I think it's, it's interesting. A, he's very, a very curious person. Uh, and very interested in what's going on in the libertarian world. Uh, so I, I want to go back, and and this will kind of be the the last. We're not gonna we're not going to get to your time working on the uh, Ford and the uh, Bush campaigns, but we're gonna save and your own campaigns. But so we'll save that as a teaser for next time. Right. Uh, so let's hop back to Gary Johnson. You you said you voted for McMullen. I about threw up, but <laughs> you 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 didn't vote for Gary Johnson. What was your reason for not get, voting for Gary? Uh, you know, I I always liked him. You know, I met him on several occasions, and when he was running uh, in in uh, 2008, I went to a small lunch with him when he was raising money. Six, um, 2012. Let me just 12, make sure. Right. Yeah, it was 12. It was the first time, right? And so I met him. I I had always liked him. I liked the fact that he's a kind of an outlier and willing to challenge the establishment. And it, as your viewers and I we talk, you'll find that. I'm kind of on the challenge the establishment side too, even though I'm part of it. Um, <laughs> um, I, I think I was really disappointed in the way he ran the campaign. I think he really had an opportunity to disrupt the election, and uh, and instead he blew it. So before the first debate, you know, they had set a threshold of 10% in the polls, and he was hovering at around eight. And I think that if he were, had been serious, he would have hired himself a good set of social media people, and he would have hired the right kind of people who had got could get him that that 2%. But he didn't do it. And I mean, you know more than I, uh, being in that orbit and set, probably the issues that, that uh, held him back on that. But I think if he had been in the first debate, he would have... Uh, he he would have really disrupted the process, and we probably would not be seeing the current administration, and I doubt we would be seeing uh, Hillary Clinton. Uh, we probably wouldn't have been seeing him, but there are a couple other good choices I think the public could have landed on. So in some respects, I think he blew it. You and I are in total agreement, uh, and it goes back to Ron Nielsen. And yeah. just to be frank, I mean, I don't, I don't know what the arrangement was there, but the the 2012 campaign I felt was much better messaged. It yeah. was much better ran, but they still had some very fundamental problems on strategy. I mean, it, it's just this is this is what happens with the LP. They, you get a guy like a Bob Barr or a Gary Johnson or a Bill Weld who comes in who doesn't really understand the culture. They don't really know the party. They don't really understand where the pockets of strength and resources are in the in the party. And they hire somebody like uh, Russ Verney who ran uh, Perot's campaign in Bob Barr's case or Ron Nielsen in Gary's case, and they just they start from scratch. 
and then yeah. and then and then the the party in, in many cases although not now i think that our current chairman has done a very very good job of getting the party in good shape and the data from the 2016 campaign actually is reaching candidates now and which is the first time that's ever happened mm-hmm. which is that's important good. um and that's much to nick nick sarwark's credit uh Nick could lose because he's not he's too humble to be chairman. He doesn't he doesn't <laughs> brag about all the good things he's done. Um but you, they they don't they don't go to places like Indiana where there is a very strong they go to they go to places where they think they will be strong and then they try to right. build a party from scratch and it makes no sense whatsoever. And in 2016 they they had the western strategy of trying to drive up the numbers and I guess on paper back you know, in 2015, that looked like a great strategy, but there was no pivot from it, and there was no flexibility in it. And, you know, Gary should have fired some low-level staffer and been like, you know, we're changing the messaging the day after Aleppo. Like, there's no, there was just no political savviness in that campaign whatsoever. And my concern for Bill Weld is that Weld is considering using Ron Nielsen again, and he, he shouldn't because his campaign in 2016 was not well run and not and, and weld is starting well, from a much wasn't professional it wasn't not by any yeah. stretch of the imagination aleppo should never have come up yeah like that's the juxtaposition you're running against donald trump and so your flub is nothing compared to what the other guy is doing uh and so there just was no messaging and when you don't feed your base in the lp with what they are supposed to say or do and everybody's just kind of wondering and grasping at straws. There just was never any messaging from that campaign to the to the grassroots on how to support the campaign. It was much better in 2012, but it still was very weak. And 2016 was just a, a nightmare. And, and, you know, what is your opinion of Bill Weld? Oh, I, I've always liked Weld, but how old is he now? Uh, I think he's 72. He's in his 70 yeah. to 75. Yeah, I, I think that... Uh he may be aging out. I hate to say. What yeah. you need is a thirty-nine-year-old Bill Weld, right? Which we have a guy named Larry Sharp in New York who may be the Republican in that state for governor. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, yeah. That I saw Weld speak this past weekend, and Weld really gave a very '90s-based policy speech: low taxes, yeah. you know, marijuana legalization, a very little spirit, very policy-oriented, and that's just not what people want. But he's clearly. I, I, I'm sure when you watch the TV uh, interviews, you're like, why isn't Weld the nominee and Gary the vice president? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Although I did, you know, I found it kind of interesting that he was on the ticket. I, I had never, it never occurred to me he was libertarian. But I think, like a lot of people, he uh, the was base, sort of pushed the, out of the party. The party had the same reaction. <laughs> it never occurred yeah. to me that Weld was a libertarian. Right. But uh, he, he also was pushed out of the party, the Republican Party. So, yeah. effectively, like a lot of people. So, uh, but he's a great. He was a, he was a very good governor. He was a great lawyer. Uh, he was a terrific public servant. Um, very articulate, smart guy. So it's kind of a shame to waste him. What was the the swamp reaction to Gary Johnson's campaign? Uh, they ignored it. Mm. I I think it was a joke uh, in D.C. Uh, I I just don't think anybody thought he was serious. Um, I think in some ways there may have been some who were more worried about the Greens. Because of the impact on Clinton, um, and uh, but but I think it was pretty much ignored. Because Jill Stein looks like a serious candidate. Yeah, yeah, 
Yeah. Well, our our yeah. complaint on the program here with Gary Johnson is you're not prepared to be president. Like you don't have you. It doesn't seem like you have your cabinet set up. You know, when you're asked about who your cabinet will be, you kind of fumble and then Weld goes, "Well, I'd name this person, this person, this person." Go, okay, good. At least <laughs> at least there's one prepared person on this. Like, That's right. and I think when you're a libertarian and you don't have policy initiatives that you can articulate, you don't have a, a cabinet in mind. Like, let's say you win the presidency, you're going to be less prepared than Donald Trump because at least he can call up AEI and and the Heritage Foundation and hire a bunch of people. You know, right. libertarians don't have that luxury. So I think a lot of us felt uninspired because we didn't know what he actually stood for. I mean, freedom is not a good enough uh, is not good enough for most voters. Yeah. Nope, I agree. So. All right. Well, we're on from here. Yep. So we are going to just give us a little teaser. I mean, give us a little teaser as to what we're going to hear next in your career. Uh, well, maybe we can talk about politics. I've been in uh, uh, at a pretty senior level in two presidential campaigns, um, uh, three presidential campaigns, and I've run a couple times myself and lost. So as my brother says, I'm a loser, <laughs> <laughs> a three time loser federal office. But, uh, you know, I, I, I do love politics, even as bad as it is. And, and uh, there are days I'm glad I'm not in it uh, anymore. And there are days I wish I were in it. So so we can talk about that next if you're interested. Absolutely. So looking forward to the next time we talk. And thank you for joining us here. Any, any final thoughts for the audience? Uh, keep an eye on uh, what happens uh, on the Korean deal. And I think the uh, the Iran deal and the fallout is pretty complex. Um, I suspect that um, the both of those will uh, probably do more than most people think they will to uh, come to a decent outcome. But there will be a lot of fallout uh, in between, particularly on uh, the Iranian deal. And we're already seeing the conflict in the Middle East uh, start up. All right. Very good. Uh, do, I don't know. Do you tweet? Are you on social media anywhere? Like it, it's... We will be soon. Okay. All right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. Well, I hope you enjoyed this. If you have questions for Rob, if you have always wondered a certain thing about the swamp and D.C. and the development of certain politics, uh, please write in at editor at wearelibertarians.com, and I'll be sure to uh, read it here on the show, and, and Rob can answer it. Uh, and we will or dodge it uh, or dodge it. I mean, that's what you people do, right? Hey, yeah, right. <laughs> All right. Well, I know you have some drinking and some canoodling that you've got. I do. do. All right. Well, I'll let you get <laughs> to it. Thanks for being on the program. Yeah. Thank you. It's fun. Bye bye.